We study billionaires, and this is episode 47 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, today we're going to sound a lot better than we usually do because we have a special guest with you. And his name is Hari Ramachandra. Everybody knows Hari from our mastermind group. Hari's always that smart guy that we bring on the show to cover our weaknesses of not knowing what we're actually talking about at times. And Hari comes from bitsbusiness.com. And the book that we're going to be talking about this week is a really, really popular book. Uh, and this was one of Hari's favorite books. And so it was a very easy decision to bring him on the show to uh, talk about some of the thoughts that he had on it, along with Stig and I, as we read this book. And the name of the book is The Black Swan. Uh, and the subtitle was The Impact of the Highly Probable. And this was written by Nassim Taleb. Uh, this book has really uh, been one of those books that a lot of different billionaires are talking about. Specifically, Jeff Bezos was a huge uh, proponent of this book. Uh, Bezos made this a mandatory reading for some period of time at Amazon for a lot of the uh, executives there. Uh, Howard Marks uh, endorses this book very heavily. You have Monish Pabrai, Guy Spear. I know that they're fans of the book. Uh, and I'm sure there's plenty more out there that really have uh, this book has had a huge impact on the way that they see markets, they see the world and the way that it operates. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's really exciting. Kari, you know, obviously some of my joking comments there, but we really do mean it. You add so much value to the podcast when you come on. So it's awesome to have you with us today. Hey, Preston, thanks for having me. Uh, as, as you mentioned, this is one of my favorite books, and I'm glad to be here talking about this book with you guys. <laughs> Always fun, buddy. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into this one. And uh, let's just go ahead and start talking about the overall theme of the book. And this is what I took away, and I want you guys to shoot some holes. Maybe I didn't understand it nearly as well as you guys, but the main thing that I took away from this is that the distribution, when you talk about uh, statistics, and that, for anybody who doesn't know Nassim Taleb and kind of what he's great at, he's great at statistics. And um, what he's talking about here in the book is that distributions are not normal. And I think that whenever people think about statistics, especially in an in the academic sense, they think about the distribution and the bell curve. And they think that that when you model different systems, whether it's the stock market and the different points on that or, or whatever the, the model might be, everyone thinks of things in a normal distribution. And I think Nassim Taleb would probably take on the approach that it's never a normal distribution and it's slightly skewed. And that because of that, you get these um, extreme results that can sometimes happen. And he uses the metaphor of the black swan. Everyone thinks that all swans are white. And then you see the black swan. And then that one event can have such a catastrophic impact to the direction of the future and the way that uh, things emerge. And so that's really kind of the takeaway that I had. And I'm real curious to hear what Stig and uh, Hari have to say about that idea, or maybe you guys want to add to some other themes that you really kind of captured from the book. So I'm going to first throw it over to Stig and then we'll go to Hari. So I just think I'll just continue on what Preston said about the normal distribution, because someone might be saying out there and saying, what is this normal distribution? What are we talking about? We're talking about statistics. And normal distribution, that's basically just that we can more or less rely on the past. We can rely on the past in the sense that uh, we have some occurrences that happens very, very often. And then we have something that happens 
very rarely. And um, I think that when you talk about black swans, it's something that can happen um, not often, but it's definitely something that is not very, very rare. And it's something that has a huge, huge impact when it does happen. Uh, so it's it's not like normal distributed. You can't just plot it in, uh, like the probability of that. Uh, not at all when talking about black swans. And the way that he is explaining that, he's doing that very neatly with an example. So the way he explains this is he's he's telling a story about a turkey which is being fed for a thousand days. Now for that turkey, the very next day is very predictable. But, well, I guess we all know what happens to a turkey around Thanksgiving, right? So he's saying, well, black swans, they're kind of relative. It might be more relevant to look at the butcher and talk about what is very common for him and what he can expect the next day. So he's having all these very, very neat examples of you can't really rely on the past. And he's saying best, the past, irrelevant, and the worst, it can be catastrophic. So I guess that was that was kind of like my main takeaway from that. I don't know about you, Hari. I know that you have read this book multiple times. So I'm really curious to hear what, what, what you're saying. I agree with both you and Preston. For me, the main message of this book is that we humans are prone to be overconfident. And as we were uh, discussing before the show, ironically, the tone of the author in the book sounds a bit overconfident. <laughs> um, but um, his message is very clear. And this tendency to be overconfident makes us take on risks that can be very harmful um, and also makes us think we can predict and control our future, whereas the world today is a complex system. And as you might have read in the book, uh, he makes it very clear that in a complex system, it's not only difficult to predict future events, but it's almost impossible. And that is the problem of induction. Uh, according to uh, Nassim in the book, the problem of induction is how can you know the properties of the infinite unknown based on the properties of the finite unknown, which goes back to what you and Priston were talking about, which is um, using a Gaussian uh, or a bell curve uh, to predict a complex system, the future events that can happen. So I got a few points of what you're talking about here, Hari. So first, I want to I want to highlight that if you're reading this book, the tone and the style of this book is going to drive you mad. Um, I had a hard time getting through it, to be quite honest with you. I, I got very frustrated with uh, Taleb's writing style and the irony of the fact that you're talking about being overconfident and then you're reading his writing style. It was pretty much the ultimate irony, I think, that you could ever read in a book. But the content is superb. The content is amazing in this book. And that was the only reason that I kept going is because the points that he is, is laying out are very profound. And I think one of the reasons Jeff Bezos has uh, really kind of uh, treated this book with so much respect is because he is hitting on the exact same point that Hari's talking about. He's talking about oversimplification. And this is something else that we learned in the book Influence, which was uh, billionaire Charlie Munger's favorite book, is that people come up with shortcuts. And I think that that's just the inherent human nature is to come up with shortcuts in order to live your life in a manner that's more predictable and, and more... Uh, 
Well, I guess more you can be more fruitful whenever you live in these predictable patterns. And, and how you do that is you come up with these shortcuts. You take a few variables, you come up with a, hey, this is going to be the outcome because this is what happened the last three times that this happened to me. And you develop that shortcut of the mind. And that's what Taleb is talking about in the book that's so dangerous is you have people that are doing this modeling based on a few variables and they think that that the future outcome is going to be more predictable than they actually think because they don't actually understand all the other outside influences that they have no comprehension for. And that's where the mistake occurs. And that's what he's really getting at. And when you talk about uh, statistics, okay, and going back to this bell curve. Uh, so when you look at the bell curve, all the, all the data points are almost all in the middle. And then they slowly go out and there's very few data points out on the very ends of the potential outcomes or the potential uh, data that's collected. What Taleb's talking about is that almost all data points of whatever system you're collecting on are actually skewed to the left or to the right. And when you do that, let's say that all the data points are pushed to the left side of the bell curve. Okay, So your mean is pushed out to the left. Your data points have a long tail out to the right. And what he's saying is when that, that long tail is pushed out to the opposite side of wherever that might be, the potential for the, that extreme data point on the far outside um, limit is extended much further than most people think or could understand. And that's the black swan. That data point that's way out there on the long tail is the thing that has some type of catastrophic change to the fundamental nature of how things work. Uh, so, uh, Hari, I saw you had something. Yeah. Pristen, uh, you uh, brought up a very good point. In fact, Talib points out to some of the fallacies or biases uh, that we humans face uh, while making decisions about the future and also how we uh, react to events in the present context. Uh, in fact, he, he lists some of the fallacies that we should avoid to protect ourselves from a black swan. They are the uh, the error of confirmation, also known as confirmation bias, which is in the book Influence, as you mentioned, the narrative fallacy, the problem of silent evidence or survivorship bias, and tunneling, which is basically focusing on a specific and ignoring what's happening around you. So these are all some of the biases that we all have inherently, and we can't really escape them. And that's his point. And if when we are overconfident, we underestimate the influence of the environment and also our own biology on us. So one of the things that I think is a really important discussion to talk about is understanding the potential for extreme circumstances. And the, the way that he really describes this in the book, he talks about mediocre stand versus extremist stand. So one of the, I think one of the best ways for people to really understand this is he provides this example of talking about, you've got to understand the range of your data points or the potential range of your data points. So he talks about a distribution of people's height. He, he would say, if we took all the different data points of how tall a person could be based on historical evidence, your range is fairly uh, finite, okay? It's, it's not a very big range. Let's say that on the small scale, you could have somebody that maybe is like three or four foot tall. And, and I'm, I don't know what the extreme numbers are here, so you got to excuse my uh, inability to talk about this too intelligently. But let's just say that it's three or four feet. And then on the tall end, maybe your range is eight feet or something like that, really tall, okay? 
So when you look at that range and let's say you had a hundred people in, in a room and you were going to guess what would the tallest person versus the shortest person might be, your ability to predict that is probably a little bit better than if it was a more extreme circumstance, which I'm going to talk about next. So let's just say we think that the tallest somebody could be in the room would be maybe six foot six and then the shortest would be maybe four and a half feet or something like that. That would be the range that I would probably guess in order to have an 80% chance of guessing correctly of every single person in the room. Now, when he talks about the range of net worth, okay, the, the range of net worth could be drastically larger because you're talking about, you know, some people don't make any money in a year. And then you could, could go clear up to somebody like Bill Gates, who has a net worth of call it $80 billion. So our distribution is so lopsided when you think about if we plotted, let's say we took the world's population and we plotted those on a bell curve, that would be skewed and so lopsided as to the, the, the high end versus the low end of that distribution. It's very lopsided. It's not a, a normal distribution that you'd be thinking about. So that would be the extreme, the extremist stand of as you would be sitting and guessing what the probability and and those outcomes could be. You could be off by a landslide if one person in the room had a net worth of call it five hundred million dollars and you guessed that the upper limit was only, you know, a couple million because there's so many more people out there with that distribution that could hit that range. So I think what he's really getting at in the book is if you are a stock investor or you're a person that is Uh, living in this realm of really understanding what probabilities could potentially occur, you have to have a firm understanding of what is the the potential range of the distribution before you start making some calculated uh, risk versus reward decisions uh, without having a firm understanding of what the possibilities could be with respect to the range. And I think it's really important that you mention that, Preston, because he really doesn't say that this is the solution. Because, like inherently, you can't uh, predict a, a black swan, and the impact will be severe. So, what do you do? It's not like Nassim uh, is saying, "Okay, you should just do this," uh, and then you're prepared. Basically, he's saying you should just be prepared for the worst, because the worst is not very likely to happen, but it can happen, and the impact again, can be severe. And so if, for instance, we're talking about stock investing, uh, my takeaway would be to diversify yourself. Um, I mean, that would just be the simple consequence of of what he's saying when he's he's saying that you should be prepared. Uh, But that's really an overall uh, concept, I guess most people would say. I I totally agree. I think it's it's having a respect for the risks that are actually there, not living in this world where you only consider a couple variables, but you understand the potential for anything to happen. And let me just throw out an example. So uh, let's talk, we were talking about Amazon and okay, and Jeff Bezos. So everyone values Amazon so highly. And I guarantee you, if something would happen to Jeff Bezos, God forbid anything like that would happen to, to somebody because of a comment. But um, let's say something would happen to Jeff Bezos. You would see, and let's say somebody had a significant amount of their savings in Amazon because they think that Amazon is a great company and Bezos is changing the world. But if something would happen to him, the value of that company would just plummet on the markets. It would go wild, okay? And that's a that's a one variable circumstance that could absolutely happen, but people don't think of it in that context if they put a very... So- large, substantial portion of their net worth into that company. Same thing could be said about Berkshire Hathaway, okay? there That is a very real potential that I don't think people 
think about when they take half of their net worth and they put it in a company? One of the one of the reasons why uh, we are overconfident uh, is that we confuse situations from mediocre mediocre stand with extreme stand as Taleb talks about in the book. In fact, in one of the chapters, he has a table that helps us understand uh, how to decipher uh, or how to distinguish a situation uh, and identify whether it is a, a situation from mediocre stand or whether it's a situation from an extreme stand. And the problem with many of the financial models is they try to apply the tools that are applicable to mediocristan to an extremistan situation like the stock market. And the modern portfolio theory, which he viciously goes after in the book, is one such example. Just to get into the um, technicals of a bell curve, why, why he hates the bell curve is that, you know, in, in a bell curve, uh, the average and the median are both assumed to be same. That what it means is there is no dispersion, there is no diversity in the events uh, within a sample, and this makes it really, really hard for us to handle situation from extreme stun because in a bell curve there is a dramatic increase in the speed of decline in the odds as you move away from the average or the center. To illustrate that, when you're looking at a bell curve, 68% of all the samples are supposed to lie within the first standard deviation, or they call it sigma. And 95% within the second standard deviation are two sigma and 99.7 within three sigma. And in one of the chapters, in fact, he goes through the goes through an example where he illustrates very clearly how this is totally wrong. And I highly encourage um, whoever is reading the book to pay attention to that chapter on bell curve. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? 
What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I absolutely love this point because it really gets back to the normal distribution versus non-normal distribution. And I think Taleb's big gripe with his community, his education community with respect to statistics is that everyone teaches the normal distribution. Everyone does the math behind the normal distribution. And I think he would make the argument that the normal distribution is that 1% type uh, environment that actually exists in reality. What he's saying is that almost everything is non-distribution. The magnitude of how skewed of the non-distribution that it is, is really kind of the, the, the crux of what environment you're operating in. And when he, when he brings that up to me, I'm like, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. And he's exactly right. And it is amazing that how much emphasis is spent uh, in the education community on the understanding of the normal distribution. And it's almost like, ah, well, if you got non-standard data, um, you know, let's, let's not talk about that or let's, let's push that over there because that's a really hard calculation. It's not something that we can put any definitive uh, statistical evidence behind. So uh, we're just going to try to maybe change the way we collect the data or whatever so that we get normal distribution. I know that because whenever I went, I got a black belt in lean six Sigma and I mean, it's all about statistics And it was amazing to me as you do different projects and you look at how you can optimize an organization and you're collecting all this data, how everyone wants to get to normal data. But when you're actually looking at the reality behind things, you've really got to move away from that and you got to have an appreciation for the black swan. And I I really like the content of the book. I can't say that enough. Um, If you haven't read this book and you're in financial markets or you're in something that's data heavy, um, I can see why this book has gotten so much traction despite the uh, atrocious tone in the book. And uh, one really, really uh, great example that Nassimi is bringing to the table uh, is this investment fund called Amaranth. And apparently uh, this fund lost $7 billion of the investors' money. That was basically all the money. And supposedly the fund has been saying that they have uh, employed 12 risk managers. So that was their way of saying to the customers, or to the investors, well, you shouldn't be worried because we hired as many as 12 managers to make sure that you won't lose your money. <laughs> and what he is saying is that if the model you're using is not right, it doesn't matter if you imply 100 managers. And so I also think that what Taleb is saying is that the problem is inherent in the system. 
Like I can just say for my part, uh, you can't graduate from my education if you don't know how to use uh, a normal distribution. That is a part of the standard curriculum. So you can't get this business degree if you don't apply and use the uh, normal distribution. And now we're talking about why it can't be used. So you're part of the problem, Stig. I mean, there, there you go. You have it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I would probably rather say it's my wife's fault because she's, she's teaching statistics. I'm only doing economics and finance. <laughs> oh, my. I hope, I hope Sophie's listening. Hey, so here's the here's here. This was in the book, and I loved this point. This was really fun. He talks about this fat Tony character. So let me just throw this out to the audience. I want to describe it from the vantage point of whenever I was reading the book. So uh, Taleb says, well, you know, if you had a coin toss and you know the chances of a, of a coin landing on heads or tails is 50 percent. Let me tell you that there's this coin and I flipped it 99 times. And of the 99 times it landed on heads. So what, what's the probability during the next flip that it's going to land on heads again? And so anybody who understands the, the gambling fallacy, uh, the gambler's fallacy, they know that the, the mathematical or the educated uh, answer is 50%. And I know whenever I uh, was reading the book, I immediately thought, oh, it's 50% because that's what you're you know, taught in school. That's what you immediately think when you have any type of like statistics background, you understand that the chance is 50%. So Taleb talks about this character and it was basically a description of street smarts versus book smarts. So the book smart person is going to say, oh, it's 50%. But the the street smart person who he described as fat Tony, um, fat Tony says, oh, it's a hundred percent that it's going to be heads. And he, and he, you know, the question is, well, why, why do you think that it's a hundred percent that it's going to be heads? He says, cause there's absolutely something that's going on that the, the, the probability of it landing on heads 99 times, that's a, it's a trick coin. <laughs> and it, I think it's a fantastic discussion. I think it's a fantastic discussion of stepping away from, okay, we know this is the book answer, but there's also another answer out there. And that's what really happens in reality. And I think that that's his way of comparing, hey, the person who talks about normal distributions talking about the book answer, the person who's talking about what happens in reality is talking about non-standard uh, distribution of probable outcomes. And he's thinking about things from, hey, what's going to happen in practicality? And I think the truth of what's actually happening here is in the middle. And I think that a person has to have a respect for the book answer and they have to understand the fundamentals of how this even works in the first place. But at the same time, you have to understand how does it apply in real life and how can I really kind of learn from both scenarios? And I think that that's really important and a great discussion and a great highlight of the two different mindsets and how you need to be thinking about this stuff. Kristen, I, I loved the story too. <laughs> that was really <laughs> insightful. Um, in fact, uh, in day-to-day -day life, uh, we have seen such people uh, at our work um, or when we are, uh, when we are uh, interacting with people uh, in society. Uh, there are people who are book smarts and there are people who are street smart. And for the audience, I, I want to also uh, let them know that Taleb is not just an author. He was actually a trader before he became an author. He also has an MBA from Wharton and then a PhD too in mathematics. So he's kind of a ultimate combination of uh, both the worlds. And he understands that all these models, uh, financial models um, that are used uh, by many uh, investing firms break down at certain points when human irrationalities are in the picture. 
And that's the point he's trying to make in this book. I'm glad you highlighted that because I think it's a really important part of the uh, discussion is the fact that he's just not an academic that has studied this. He actually worked on Wall Street. I think he was a commodities trader. Is that right? Yeah, he was a commodities trader. And he doesn't come out and directly say this in the book, but he definitely implies the fact that he was shorting the market in 1987 whenever it crashed during that that really deep crash in 1987, which I thought was pretty cool if uh, if he's you know, being completely forthright with his positions during that time. Uh, and I think it tells you, I think it shows you how contrarian he really is with some of his ideas. And it's kind of a really neat discussion. And um, that's something else that I really liked about the book is you see a lot of his examples from working in financial markets come out in the book. So if you're thinking that it's a purely academic type read, it really is. And he gives a lot of experiences from his time of working on Wall Street and a lot of financial uh uh, information is kind of discussed throughout the book as examples, which we obviously really liked here at our at our show. And Princeton, in fact, he uh, he also talks about the problem of making decisions under uncertainty. And his his main uh, squabble with academicians or professors is that they never have to make their decisions under uncertainty. Uh, in fact, in one of the chapters, he talks about these professors and philosophers and economists who who get their paycheck every Friday, and part of it is invested in their 401ks, <laughs> and and they blindly trust the markets. They don't think. Whereas as a trader, they have to constantly make uh, decisions that can make or break their careers and under uncertainty. And that's where he kind of, you know, has uh, really distilled his thoughts into in this book. Yeah, he was doing that as he was like basically bashing academia over the head with the idea like, hey, these guys not only teach that everything's normally distributed, but then they go and they invest in that manner as well, thinking that everything's normally distributed when it's not. And I totally agree with his point. It's just the the way he goes about saying it is very uh, brutal, I guess, to that community. Um, Stig, are you with us? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm just trying not to be feel too hurt. Uh, <laughs> and and you know, wondering how he ever got a PhD without applying the uh, knowledge distribution. <laughs> yeah, seriously, how did he ever get through that gate? <laughs> uh, go ahead, Hari. Stig, I want to uh, and, like you know uh, get your take on his attack on academics and uh, professors because. I know you and some of other academicians who are also quite practical uh, and are also doers, as he says, not just thinkers. So what is what is your perspective on his opinion about academics? Yes, what's it like being a black swan? (laughs) Well, um, I definitely agree with uh, Nassim. I I hope I'm not as brutal as he is uh, when he's talking about academics. Um, But when I was graduating and and through my graduate studies, I was told that the efficient market hypothesis was true. Uh, I remember I found it was quite weird uh, because that was back in 2009 and everything used to be like double uh, in, in price and how could that be efficient and then six months after it was half and there was also efficient I really wasn't sure how to grasp that but that is what we were told and then I actually got a job as a commodities trader exactly the same as Talib and you were just seeing you know the minute you step on the on the commodities trading floor that nothing is efficient at all the only thing you can be sure of is that someone will you know yell something nasty 
<laughs> during the next five seconds. I guess I guess that's it. But he's definitely right. And and when he's talking about academics, it's just because we in academia, if, if I can say we about that, is that we like to put things into an equation. Like we need to put this into an exam. And how can you put anything into an exam in finance economics if you can't put it into a formula? And I think that's that's also one of his main things here. He's not only trying to prove his own point, he's also trying to, um, you know, having like a class with the whole academic community. I think the thing that's amazing is, I mean, Stig didn't mention this, but I mean, he's talking about when he was at Harvard. I mean, this is Harvard University that is teaching these models. And I think that that's just amazing. I mean, you talk about one of the the best business school in the entire world is teaching these models. I know when we had Guy Spear on the show, he he went to Oxford, you know, and he's talking about these models being the, at, the, at the forefront of what they're teaching at these high-end Ivy League schools. And it just goes flying in the face of you talk to anybody on wall street what they think and i mean they're going to laugh at you if you say efficient market hypothesis i mean you're going to get laughed out of the room uh Krista, that's a good point in fact that reminds me uh, a comment by charlie munger he said investing is so simple it's just three points and you're done within a day or two so what are the universities going to do for the rest of the semester <laughs> so they have to justify the fee there <laughs> they're charging the students <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about a bubble, start talking about college tuition. Uh, that's that's a whole different conversation, but watch that thing pop. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's some great points. Uh, really fun conversation. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to highlight that you thought was really uh, a good discussion point in the book? I don't want to drone on because I think his, his point was really fairly concise. And then he gives a lot of examples. Phenomenal book. Just, just be prepared for the tone. I, I'm telling you right now, there's times that, you know, I wanted to throw the thing across the room, but uh, in general, the content is phenomenal. It is very good. It's well worth your time. I think that you will definitely get a lot out of it. And I think that you're going to look at things a little bit differently. I think you're going to take the approach where you're going to really think twice about simplifying anything. And I think that you're going to have a greater appreciation for what the potential outcomes could potentially be, uh, especially on that long tail piece of the distribution of whenever you think about all these probable uh, or possible outcomes and probabilities. So, uh, Hari, Stig, did you guys have anything else you wanted to add? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. 
It's extremely durable. It has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier. And they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. I, I just have one thing because it really wouldn't be a good episode if it didn't round off with a stock <laughs> stock market <laughs> observation. Uh, I, I remember uh, reading this book uh, just before we were talking uh, talking with uh, Mark and Downey, the author of All One Hundred One, and and one of the things that we also talked about here about about overconfidence is that, as Harsh said before, that you overestimate what you do know and underestimate what you don't know. And you know, I, I'm following the oil sector, and I, I'm definitely not an expert in oil, but I think I can give my two cents about this whole oil discussion and which oil stocks to invest in and how to look at oil stocks. But he he was like, but Morgan was giving me so much knowledge about the oil market that I have no clue about. So that really made me think. Also, reading this book at the same time, like I probably overestimated when I did know about oil and definitely underestimated all the, these things that I didn't know actually existed. Now, this is not the same as for me as saying I'm not bull on oil anymore. I think most people probably know that that's my opinion on, on, on oil. It's definitely not a fact. It's an opinion. But I just I just think it's, it's really important to know that as a stock investor, that to pick out individual stocks, you really need to know a lot about that uh, compared to when doing index investing. Uh, for instance. So I got a story to tell and it has nothing to do with investing, but it, it, it does have to do with Stig's point. So um, I've mentioned a few times on the podcast that I was a former military pilot. I was an Apache helicopter pilot, which is an attack helicopter. It has, you know, missiles and all that kind of fun stuff on it. And uh, whenever I first started flying and I was a brand new f- student in flight school, uh, one of the things that was easy for me to do was just to climb into the cockpit and just kind of fly around because I was flying with somebody else that was very experienced and somebody who had a lot of hours and a lot of flight time. And so it wasn't really scary to do, you know, a landing at night with a, uh, with a sensor, a small little sensor for anybody that's familiar with the Apache, there's this little, uh, eyepiece that fits on one of your eyes, only one of your eyes. And it displays, uh, images at night based off of heat sensing. Okay. And that's how you've got to land and fly the aircraft. And so it's extremely, extremely difficult to do, especially as you're starting out. But it was never really that scary for me because I always had this person that was flying with me that would, you know, if I messed up, he'd kind of take the controls and assist me and help me with a maybe a night landing on a really small uh, landing zone or whatever it might be. 
Now, what was really crazy is the more that I learned and the better that I became at flying and I started becoming in charge and I was the pilot in command and the air mission commander, those landings got really scary all of a sudden. And the reason why is because I was in charge now and I knew that there was no one there to, to bail in and save me from the mistakes that I was going to potentially make. And so what seemed to be something that was really simple and just kind of like, ah, yeah, I can do that. And I'd just kind of fly in and do it because I knew somebody was always behind me ready to save my butt. And then whenever I was in charge, it totally flipped. And what was amazing is I got more experienced. It got scarier and it got worse. And I think that there's a lot of people in investing that can empathize with this idea of the as the more you learn and the more that you now understand commodities, you understand macroeconomics, you understand microeconomics, you understand accounting, you understand all those different variables and how they all fit together. I think you find that the more experience you get and the more that you understand all the variables, you start to realize uh, this is a little scarier and a little bit more difficult than I ever thought whenever I was a beginner and whenever I was first starting out. And so I tell that story to really kind of act as a uh, example for maybe somebody who's entering the market and they get a little bit of experience or they maybe start understanding. Let's say you just started understanding accounting and you really feel like you understand the income statement, but you don't know all that other stuff. Like you don't know M1, M2, M3 currency, all that kind of stuff. It can be, I, I guess what I want you to have is that deep appreciation for what's actually happening behind the scenes and that there are so many more variables to understand. And I'm not saying that to scare you away from investing, but um, I guess I'm saying it for you to have an appreciation for investing and for what's really happening behind the scenes that you might not actually understand. Kristen, that was an amazing story. Thanks for sharing with, that with us. Um, and in fact, I think uh, if if somebody has to take away one thing from this book, uh, that would be that black swan is a sucker's problem. And our goal should be to not be that sucker or that turkey that gets killed on the thousandth day. And, and as an investor, uh, the more we know, the less confident we should be because skepticism should be something that uh, be inherent in the process of investing. And, and through your story, you uh, beautifully illustrated that, that essence. And um, I hope we all remember that as we uh, um, move in our journey towards being a better investor. And so, Hari, I like that because how do you become the guy that or the turkey that's not slaughtered on the thousand and first day? And, and, you know, I would argue, I think the best way to do that, or at least the approach that I'm taking is, and this is what I took whenever I was flying, who is the best pilot in our unit? Who's the, who's the guy who knows, you know, who has the most hours, who has the most experience and what, what is the best advice I can gain from him? Until I get to that point where I really feel like maybe I have become that guy. And so I think with investing, the best thing I know to do is who are the be- who, who are the people that have the highest net worth and how did they get that net worth? If they got it through actually investing in markets and that's how they acquired it, that's somebody I want to track. That's somebody that I want to really listen to and fully understand what do they know? How did they know it? What did they read? But if you're the type of person that acquired a billion dollars on a whim because you invented something that was really revolutionary, but it wasn't in financial markets, that's somebody I'm not probably going to pay nearly as much attention to. So I think it's twofold. Who's done really well and does it relate to the the topic or the the environment that I'm trying to understand? Is that how they acquired that uh, knowledge? That's the people that I think you want to study. And I think if you try to 
go on those people's coattails and really follow them closely. Don't do exactly what they're doing. You need to understand the essence of their knowledge and their understanding. That's what you need to understand. And I think that's how you become the person that avoids that slaughtering on the thousand and first day. I would just add one more thing about following great investors. Uh, I would look at who's done really well and for how long, but at the same time with a bit of caution, uh, because one of the stories that uh, Taleb uh, tells in the book is of the captain of the ship uh, who was in charge of Titanic. Uh, And he had no accidents, no incidents. Uh, in his long career till Titanic. So with that, I think um, we all should kind of, you know, follow great investors, but at the same time, know that everybody is human. There there can be mistakes. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, good point, Hari. And I think the key is to understand the the underlying thing about this. So why has Warren Buffett been successful in stock investing? And really understanding what's the idea behind value investing. I think that's really key because you're also talking about the duration of that success. Now, I have no clue about the whole thing about Titanic. The only thing I remember in the end was that Leonardo died and I was very sad. Uh, But from from what I remember, it was uh, a new ship and it was probably the first time he was sailing with that type of ship. I mean, that might be the element that is the reason why he's saying i don't know if it was a new route or whatever happened but you know i think we just really need to understand what is the underlying event that can happen and why why do we don't we think that this strategy uh, will or won't succeed i'll tell you one thing that leonardo dicaprio he's a hell of an actor <laughs> and i say <laughs> if you don't know my personality i'm extremely sarcastic so i did not mean that um okay <laughs> <laughs> There's a book. It's called Only the Petrified Survive. Is that right? I thought it was. I a- believe it's the, Only the Paranoid Survive. There you go. That's Only the Paranoid Survive. That's on our list of books. I think it was Michael Dell, uh, whose net worth is in the like the twenty billion range, that recommends that book. And I bet you any money that that's uh, a large theme in that book is what we're discussing right now. Uh, I have not read it. I, I plan on reading it, but um, and if somebody out there's read it, let us know if we're on target here. But uh, that's all we have for you guys. Let's go ahead and uh, hop over to the uh, question from our audience. And the question this week comes from Sammy Khan, and this is what he's got. Hey, Preston Stig, I love your podcast and all the great work you guys do. I hope you keep it up. My question comes off the heels of hearing Mark Cuban say that value investing is more applicable to people like Warren Buffett who can move billions of dollars. And I was wondering if there's any validity to the notion that value investing is for the big guy and not the small investor. All right. I love this question. Uh, yeah, I think Mark Cuban's wrong. Um, I think that value investing is for any person out there who can understand what discount cash flow is and figuring out the value of something today versus the relative environment that currently exists with respect to interest rates and fixed income investments. That's my personal opinion. Um, I think Mark Cuban is a very smart businessman. I think Mark Cuban understands business at a very deep level. Um, I know if you watch the the show Shark Tank, you can really get a glimpse of uh, why he's been so successful. Um, but let's face the facts. Mark Cuban became a billionaire because he started a, a website company called Broadcast.com, and he sold it to Yahoo for, uh, I want to say, $4 billion. And that's really where he made his quantum leap. 
Um, he really didn't make his quantum leap in, in, in investing like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. He just didn't. Um, now, a lot of people out there might love Mark Cuban. I'll be honest with you. I'm a pretty big fan of Mark Cuban myself. I really like the guy. But um, I think he's dead wrong on this. I'm real curious to hear what Stig and Hari have to say, though. Yeah, I think I'm going to side with you on this one, Preston. I think he's wrong. And if anything, I think that value investing is easier if you don't have that much money. I agree. So if you look at the S&P 500, I think that like the small companies, that's probably around like $2 billion or something like that. So for someone like Warren Buffett and his net worth is like $60 billion, something like that, and Berkshire Hathaway when he's doing his investments, I think the market cap is uh, north of $300 billion. You know, he probably have, I don't know, between 100 or 150 companies, something like that, when he invests in. He cannot even invest in the small huge companies in the in the states because they would not make it uh, you know any difference in his portfolio so he is a, has a very limited investment universe that you and i uh, don't have i mean we can invest in extremely small companies and get you know very high returns and just one thing i want to mention to this is that early in his career uh, warren buffett actually have uh, like multiple years where he made more than 50 percent a year and you know he's been famous for saying he can still do that if he only had one bill, one million dollars. But now that he has so much money, it's really really hard to make those returns. Well, let's think about it. if we think about this in a quantifiable manner. Okay, so Warren Buffett, his market caps of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, three hundred billion dollars. So if he takes a billion dollars and he invested in let's say an IBM or something like that, one billion dollars is going to move the market price. I'm sorry, folks, it's just a lot of money. And when you look at the volume of trade that that's conducted on a daily basis, he's going to just overwhelm that thing. And when you have uh, an oversupply of buying and an undersupply of selling, it moves the market price higher. That's just the fact. Okay, so the problem that he has is when you talk about one billion dollars on a company that has a market cap of three hundred billion. Guess what? That's point three percent. Okay, that's point three percent. That's nothing. That is absolutely nothing. And so he's dealing with these very large numbers and it's very hard for him to get in at a good price without actually impacting the, the price that he's buying it at just because he's dealing with so much money. So that's why he has that quote. That's why he says, if I only had a couple million dollars, I could do a 50% annual return because he understands business at an extreme level and he understands value investing at a deep level. And so I think that's why we have the exact opposite opinion of Mark Cuban. But let me say this, we're extremely biased. We are extremely biased in that opinion. So um, I I need to say that because we study Warren Buffett. We love the guy. We think that he's brilliant. And um, we know we've been manipulated by his thought process. So you got to take what we're saying as a biased opinion. Uh, Hari, I want to hear what you got to say. Kristen, I believe uh, value investing is all about your mindset. And and I can sympathize with um, the the question because... um, Living in Silicon Valley, you see a lot of people lucking out uh, by either joining a startup or like, you know, their startup going IPO or being bought over by other companies. It's kind of a get rich quick expectation that uh, that kind of builds into our mindset when we see uh, such things happening. But coming back to uh, our topic today, we have to remember those are black swans. Whereas value investing is a reliable uh, way to make money and get wealthy, but it is definitely not a way to get wealthy quick. And if we understand the difference, then we can choose which path we want to go. 
All right. So, Sammy, we love this question. This was a really fun one to pick apart. And, I, you know, I really challenge people out there to just not take our advice for uh, being right or wrong here. I think you really need to form your own opinion. And I, I promise you, Mark Cuban has that opinion for a reason. And I think, you know, if you dug into it and you tried to understand why he has that opinion, I think you'd probably add better context to our, you know, obviously biased value investing approach. So I challenge people to go do that and kind of form your own opinion. But that's that's kind of the way we uh, we like to answer the question. So, uh, Sammy, thank you so much for submitting that. We're going to send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And for anybody else out there, if you want to ask your question and get it played on the show like Sammy, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. So we really want to thank uh, Hari for coming on the show. He has a great website. It's called bitsbusiness.com. You can go there and Hari writes a blog uh, that is just phenomenal. So I really encourage people to go do that. And uh, we just really appreciate everything that everyone's doing out there for you. If you're enjoying the show, go to iTunes and leave us a review because that helps us out tremendously with uh, getting more listeners. And we just really appreciate that. I want people to really know that we truly appreciate that. And one last thing. So every single book that we read, uh, that we do a discussion on with the podcast, we type up an executive summary of that book. So if you go to our website and you sign up on our mailing list, you will get a free executive summary that Stig and I type up for this book. So for the Black Swan, we're going to send that executive summary out to everybody on our mailing list. The summary is usually about five pages and it summarizes the book chapter by chapter. So if you want to get that for free, go ahead and sign up on our list. We do not send marketing spam. We do not send advertisements. We only send out the these book summaries. So uh, don't worry about that. And if you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. So uh, we just love interacting with our audience and we thank you so much for listening to the show. So uh, that's all we have. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the investors podcast to listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show. Be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.